Hey everybody, instead of the usual suspects, myself and Ben, you have uh, just me, Katie, this week. I'm talking with Michelangelo D'Agostino, who is the Vice President of Data Science at ShopRunner, which is a uh, e-commerce company in Chicago. Hi Michelangelo, thanks for joining. Hey Katie. We are talking about data science management. This is something we've been chatting about for a while. We wrote an O'Reilly report together on this very topic uh, a few months ago and thought it would be worthwhile to get in a room and talk it through a little bit. So that's what we are doing today, uh, talking about once you have a data science team in place, how do you keep those folks learning? How do you keep them growing? How do you think about moving them along in their careers? All that good stuff. So you're listening to Linear Digressions. So um, in our last couple of episodes, which if you haven't listened to, Strongly recommend that you go back and, and pick those up, but um, a little bit of recap here. So we talked a little bit about getting into data science management and the different types of data scientists, how you assemble a team, and why it's so important to get sort of the right blend in your team. Once you have the team assembled or you have kind of a critical mass, like Angela, I bet most of your time these days is not, your managerial time might not be on hiring, but it's instead on growing your team, making sure that they're learning and they're sticking around, they're happy, they're progressing in their careers. Can you say yes? <laughs> yes. Sorry, you can't, you can't, yeah. hear, you can't hear me nodding. <laughs> um, so, and, and this was something that we, we took two or three chapters to talk about, if I recall correctly, because it's really important and um, it's... I, at least for me, you know, this is the stuff that's not always obvious because sometimes if you're a good manager, you're working super hard, and but people don't see the things that you're, you know, fighting for or the processes that you're putting in place to, to keep them happy. And there's, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a little bit cynical, but sometimes it feels like the only time you hear about it is when people are unhappy, not when they're happy. That sounds, sounds about right, yeah. I think that's just how management is sometimes. Uh, nature of the beast. Um, so, but... When we worked together, so we, we worked together for a couple of years, and I remember even when I first started at that job, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff that was in place even when I arrived. I imagine that you were part of starting some of this, certainly part of, of continuing it, the, the things that had been started before your time, um, that created a really nice learning environment. And so I think that now, upon reflection, I realize how important that was for me as a younger data scientist, as a way of learning and and staying happy. So, so if you could give a little bit of detail about what it was that you put in place, and we can use that as an example to, to branch off from. Yeah, it's funny. I actually don't know that I can take credit for having put in place a lot of the good things uh, that we had at Civis. I, but... I, I can't take credit for stealing them and putting them in place in my current company, <laughs> actually. Um, but this is actually, I think, one of my favorite topics, um, uh, at least one of the, my favorite topics from the book. And the way um, the way we talk about it in the book is kind of this idea of like FOMO, like fear of missing out. That um, like data scientists really have this feeling that like if they're not using cool new techniques or they're not learning things, that um, they're like falling behind. Um, and just a- again, anecdotally, like. I think a lot of people quit jobs or go from company to company because they feel like they're getting like stagnant or they're not learning anything or doing anything interesting at their company. And so um, like some of these things that we had in place, I think help combat that that feeling that people can have. 
Um, so like what kinds of things are we talking about? So um, we're big fans of, of just the simple idea of having a, a journal club where folks get together, read a paper, a blog post, like something like that. Maybe they've ideally they've read the paper or the blog post, but that's not necessarily mandatory. And get together and discuss it. Um, someone who has like selected the paper could maybe give a short presentation, but really you can just do it over lunch and spend an hour um, like talking about a, a paper or a blog post and like learning something new. Can I tell a dirty secret? Everyone. You never read the paper. <laughs> no, what I was going to say is every once in a while, this doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while I'll realize that Journal Club is on a topic that I wanted to do on the podcast anyway, and then I'll make sure I go to Journal Club so I can have somebody else oh, wow. read you the paper for me. Now all your listeners know the secret. And then I say smarter stuff than <laughs> if I were just doing it by myself. But we have like, yeah, I think we find that a great way for people to like keep learning stuff, but it's also a good opportunity for the company because a lot of times like interested engineers or analytics people will come, um, like people who are like a little bit um, interested in getting into the field and it's just a good way to like socialize data science like around your your company. Um, one thing we've done a few times like when we forgot to select a paper is to have like a, we call it like data science movie night where we would like find a talk from an interesting conference, like PyData puts their videos online, a lot of conferences put their videos online, um, and we'll just like sit for the hour and like watch a talk, uh, a conference talk together. And I think people often accumulate these lists of things they want to watch and they don't have the time for it, and that's just another cool way to get people like watching something um, and learning something. Um, so Journal Club, a, a thing that we're a big fan of. The second one, um, I think, is like some sort of dedicated hack time. And I definitely did not start this at our previous job, and I definitely didn't even come up with the best iteration that I think that we've landed on. So um, actually, I've now been at three companies that have done hack time. Like we've been, and seen many flavors. Like one flavor is like that we used at a previous company was like half of every Friday um, you got to do whatever you wanted, essentially. Another one has been like, what is it, like a full day, a full day once a month. I think that's where we're doing a full day once a week at some point. Either way, like the, in those like short increments, I find they often don't work very well for two reasons. Like one, people don't aren't able to set the time uh, apart. Like if it's just half a day every week, like you just get pulled into meetings or you get pulled into yeah, normal work. Like so. you can't actually you can't actually do it. Even if it's like a day every other, it's like very hard to set the time aside. So then we've tried whole team hackathons and you know spending two days um, like working on something as a team. We did a Kaggle competition as a team once and like, and that has been fun and that has its advantages. But I think the, the downside to that is that people can't work on the particular thing that they're interested or they want to, to learn about. Yeah. So that's a problem. So I think, um, both what we did at Civis and what we do now here is the idea of, of individual hack weeks and how often you do them depends on your company and what you, what you can do. Um, we do them quarterly, but you could you could even do them once or twice a year. But the idea is basically that each person gets to spend a dedicated week on like a hack project. And because it's a whole week, we tell them to treat it like it's a vacation and plan for it like way out in advance. And, you know, people can take a week vacation and get out of meetings and get out of projects. So do the same thing with this hack week, like actually set the time aside. A week is like long enough to make meaningful progress on a project, like to actually get end to end on a prototype or try a new software package or open source something. And then the last bit is like some kind of bit of accountability to make people are sure people are actually doing something. So um, having a slight plan in place ahead of time that people can look at and then doing a presentation to the rest of the team at the end is super important. So uh, we do it on Fridays. We'll have like a 45 minute presentation where the person that was on Hack Week will like 
walk the rest of the team through what, what they've done. And so the rest of the team also gets to learn something new and cool. Um, but then that person realizes like, hey, I actually have to do something because I'm going to get up and I'll, I'll embarrass myself if I have like nothing to show for my week. And then the side, yeah, once I went into management and I personally had basically no time for Hack Weeks, I loved hearing about people's Hack Weeks. Cause it, yeah, it's a chance to like kind of live vicariously and people yeah. come up with like all kinds of really interesting stuff. Yeah, and one thing, one, one thing we put in the report is that I think this was true at both both places. It's amazing how often something someone did as part of a hack week became part of like your normal tool set or like actually was a thing that got put into yeah, a product yeah. or something like that. And but I think it's like it's worth mentioning that like sometimes it takes a long time, so it's worth like I think that's a good argument for hack weeks, but it's also worth just kind of doing some of the expectation management right. around it. Like, it might take six months or a year or something because it's just, like, the time hasn't come. But. Yeah, like, you don't want to set the expectation that, like, tons of things are going to come out immediately and be useful, but I think it is useful to, like, keep a list in the back of your head that is like, hey, someone introduced us to this idea and did a hack week, and then six months later it blossomed into this thing that we now use because um, yeah. that's something you can point to for, like, justification for why you should do them. Totally. Um, another big topic, I think the last big topic in our report that's probably pretty interesting to folks is how you think about how we think about career ladders and sort of a formal career growth as opposed to just, well, not just because it's important, but like more informal learning stuff. Um, so one of the things that we emphasized in the report was actually writing down what a example career track looks like because um, if it's something that you've never seen before, writing it the first time can be really hard, and I think a decent amount of this stuff can be kind of templatized. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a few things that I think are worth talking about in this, and maybe to take them in order. So the career path that we worked on together, it um, in the lower levels, uh, sort of the more junior levels, starts out with one career track, but then we branched it at a certain point between individual contributor and management. I think, and we talked a lot about why we think that's important. So maybe summarize, summarize a little bit your thoughts on allowing people to advance in their careers without having to take on management responsibilities. Yeah, so um, a couple episodes back we talked about, I guess, my transition into management, which was very much like, hey, you're around and we need someone to be a manager. Like, you seem like you should do this. Or, um, you know, they're not always, it's not always an intentional decision for people to go into management. And um, that's not always, that's not really a good thing generally. Like, management is a very different job and you don't want to force people to do it because it's neither good for the people that are being managed by that person who doesn't really want to do it. And it's not good for that person because they don't really want to be doing it. So, like, no one really wins in that in that situation. So the message you we like try to communicate is like hey you can succeed here and get promoted and have more influence across the company and make more money etc both by being like a really really good individual contributor and or by being a manager you don't have to be a manager um, in order to succeed at the company so i think it's worth stepping back for a second for folks who aren't in management and are wondering if it's if it's the right thing for them can you talk a little bit about what your job as a manager largely is right now and how it's different from just being a really, really good data scientist? Yeah, so I'll talk about like the, the good parts of the job and then like maybe the not so great parts of the job. Like the best parts of the job are being able to like look out kind of like across the organization and see opportunities for, for problems for the team to work on, 
um, to get resources for the team to work on those things. And like, but you really have to enjoy succeeding through other people. Like you're not like, you don't get the adrenaline jolt anymore of like um, pushing some code and seeing it have some effect or like thinking of an idea for an AB test and seeing there's some huge lift. Like you're not really doing that anymore, but like you might see two or three people on your team take an idea from beginning to end and like push it out and have great results. And you have to be happy, like vicariously, like through them, I guess. Um, so like the best parts of the job are like, you know, coming up with ideas for projects, getting them resourced, putting the right people on projects and then like seeing them succeed, I guess. But a lot of the time is like sitting in one-on-one conversations with people that you manage and like asking them about their week or asking them about their career progression or like, writing performance reviews or like looking at spreadsheets of like you know how many people we have room to hire uh, like things that are like very unglamorous i watched a really good talk at one point that that about management that said like what's both good and bad about management is that like the amount of things that funnel through you increases so like you get to see more fun projects um every like thing cool thing your team does like you kind of have some exposure to and that's great But then on the flip side, like every problem or annoyance also ends up like getting funneled through you. And like if you have enough people, someone is always unhappy about something or has some problem. And it's like your job to kind of deal with. So what's a characteristic of someone who makes a really great individual level contributor and should be like gunning to advance in their career through the IC track rather than management? Um, I think it actually really just has to do with like do you really, really like to write code or not? Like, can you be happy spending the vast majority of your days and weeks not writing code? See, I kind of, I might disagree with you a little bit. Here. Okay. So I think that I think that ICs also naturally tend to write less code as they get more senior, but they still write code. Like, I think me as a manager, I basically never wrote anymore but I think I like a senior I see, no you're right maybe that was a bad answer well no I think it's but I think it's like an, an interesting one and, and it's a good conversation like my take is that an IC a senior IC is still looking across the organization for problems but they are the primary owner of like the technical solutions to those like they they're still close enough to the metal that they can make technical decisions themselves rather than like a lot of yeah. managers would have to delegate it. I so I was trying to go in that direction because I think the, the thing I didn't want to say is that you should go into management if you're good at dealing with people or working across teams or organizations because mm-hmm. I think senior individual contributors, like the really good ones, they do need to be able to work across teams and they do need to be able to talk to other people and develop technical solutions and evangelize stuff. Like, So it's not really just a, am I good with people or not. Um, well, but I think that's that's actually, I totally agree. And I think there's like an interesting larger lesson here that I kind of learned firsthand, but then would find myself having to parlay in, in different ways to the people under me that basically after a certain point, career progression doesn't come from being good at more technical stuff. Like that's important in the earlier stages, but it starts to I think taper off after a certain point and that being able to work with people becomes disproportionately more important even if you're on the IC track. I think that's right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. But to get back to your other thing, I think maybe you are right that like even if more senior individual contributors aren't writing code all day, they are still thinking about deeply technical issues. Like they're thinking about architecture or like code best practices or like things that are still related to code. And I guess on the manager side, it is much more about like 
resource allocation maybe and like project selection and some things like that. So in your experience then once you go into management is is that it are you like you can never be an IC again or um, I, I don't I don't actually know the answer to that question. I'm a, I'm a, I have an opinion. Or maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a little bit afraid of the answer to that question cuz uh, do you remember do you remember I said this I've said this a couple times currently, but I said this at our previous job as well, that if like we ever were acquired and I made millions and millions of dollars that I would take your jobs again. Like I would oh, go, I would go and job. be, I would go and be like a member of the team again and just like write code. Yeah. So it was, it was such a fun job. <laughs> I think in my heart, I like to think that you could go back to being an individual contributor. And I do know people who have bounced back and forth, like from management to being an IC again, to go back into management, uh, both in engineering and in, in, in data science. So I think it is possible, um, but it is hard to keep your skills up to date um, when you're when you're managing all the time. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it's possible too. I think it, but like you said, the longer that you're, the longer that your hands are off the keyboard or that you're farther away from technical decisions, yeah, the harder it gets to kind of retrofit yourself back into that, just because the field moves so fast. Yeah. But if you're a person who's been hired or thinking deeply about like hiring growth mindset folks and you know how to learn new things that, I don't know. You could probably get back into it. I would think so, I would think so. Maybe that's just what we tell ourselves so we can sleep at night. Yeah, <laughs> it could be, that could be. So we have these career paths that, again, if you're really interested in the nitty gritty of career paths, you should check these out. We'll have a link to the report on lineardigressions.com. But I think the biggest thing that I wanted to emphasize, we've kind of touched on a little bit already, which is like the meta theme of these career paths is that advancing in data science after a certain point is not about whether you know more about the assumptions of ordinary least squares or how to write an API according to certain restful conventions or whatever. It's a little bit more about the, the coalition building, bringing people along with you as you, and I think knowing what kinds of problems to work on as you get more senior, that you're generally operating with more autonomy and independence and responsibility as yep. you move into the city ranks. I think the other meta point about the career ladder that's important is just like the existence of a career ladder is a very, a very important thing for, for a team to have, I guess. That like, um, you can only get by with like vague um, career advice and one-on-ones for so long before people want to know like actually like what do I have to do like actually what does it mean to be a senior data scientist or a lead data scientist or a data science manager like what are the actual like expectations and having a ladder at least um, like gives you things that you can point to in those conversations and say like hey, I think you're really great at these things or maybe not so much these things and these are areas that you should work on if you're interested in going this direction or that direction. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that I had with writing career ladders is knowing that they're, they become kind of this foundational document for all of these career conversations and choices that you have downstream. So they have to be good and cover the bases and it's, it's a contract of sorts between you and your team. You're saying like, if you do these things, I'm kind of telling you that you'll progress along a certain path. Um, so if you have, if it has a big hole in it that somebody manages to walk right through, like that's kind of your fault as much as it is. You may, re- you may remember this, but uh, I'm pretty sure you mostly wrote the career ladder at our mm-hmm. previous job because yeah. 
for the reasons you just mentioned, I was avoiding it for a really, really long time. And then eventually, you know. <laughs> eventually there was a revolution from the people and they were like, we want a career ladder. I think so. we, as I recall, we put a meeting on your calendar and we tried to give it a name that you that you wouldn't say that you couldn't come. So we named it something like product <laughs> strategy deployment stand up or something. And then you showed up. We're like, surprise, is about career ladders. Right. <laughs> But yeah, I think because it has that seriousness where it is like a little bit like a contract or like you've, you've kind of like laid a stake in the ground, um, like it can be scary to write, but it's also super important. Yeah, but I think like the other point I was going to make is that the way that you talked about career ladders is I think exactly the right one, which is like it's the basis of a conversation between a manager and an employee. It's not the beginning and end of everything that ever happens around career progression. So like the ones that we've written here and that we've put in the report are a little bit vague in part because we, you know, there's just a lot of different people who might be taking these and adapting them for their own purposes, but they're not very much more vague than some of the ones that you or I might have written, and I think that's because there's just so many different ways that data scientists can show mastery in all of the different areas of expertise that they might have that, like, it has to be custom crafted. Yeah, I think, I think the phrase that's in the report is, like, it should be more of a, a guidebook than an instruction manual. Like, it's not like a set of check boxes where you're like, check, 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 check. I've checked every single one of these five boxes. Like, now promote me. Like, maybe in an ideal world you could do that, but it's always, like, a little bit more nuanced. But, like, the ladder has to get you, like, in the right direction. You know, like, you have to be mostly in the right direction and not check every single thing rigorously. Yeah, I totally agree. A general topic to sort of wrap this up and put a bow on it. There's a good phrase for this that we used to talk about a lot, which is the notion of T-shaped data scientist, which neither you nor I made up, but um, it's very useful nonetheless. Yeah, the first time I saw it was in a, um, an earlier O'Reilly report act to ours called Analyzing the Analyzers that was about different kind of data scientist archetypes. But I think they have ripped that from, this might actually be a thing like in the human resources career like literature or something. Um, but the idea is that like if you imagine um, a capital letter T that um, someone should be broad across um, a set of skills and then deep in one particular area. So our career ladder is written where like there are different aspects of the data science job that vary depending on what kind of data scientist you are. But like in my particular product, engineering heavy culture, I believe we use like ML and stats, um, software engineering, and then kind of like data systems as our, as our three different areas. Um, and as you progress like up the ladder, you're supposed to kind of have the the, the the breadth across the basics of each one of those areas, which is like the crossbar of the T. And then depending on your particular area of emphasis, like you should go deep in one of those areas and have like kind of more expert level knowledge in like one of those specific areas. Yeah, and I think that's that's true of what I've seen from watching a number of, of people that I've worked with on my teams as they progress in their career, like seeing that they naturally start to become like a very, very expert in yeah, like experiment design and statistical methods or they become really great engineers or they're interfacing with the product folks all the time right. and, and they understand all that sort of stuff. So I think it, to some extent it happens naturally, but it's worth it's worth emphasizing that, yeah, there's like a, a certain level of specialization that kind of starts to characterize senior data scientists, I think. Yeah, and I think it's helpful like to ask that, you know, to ask the people on your team, like, hey, which of these areas do you feel like the most passionate about, you know? And like, it's okay to not be passionate about every single one of these areas. Like, I know some, you know, I'm like, I think I'm always the worst engineer on all of the, the teams that I'm on, like partly by design, but also like that's just not 
the area that I am like most passionate about. Like I'm passionate about other things, I guess. Yeah, well, and I think that's true. I mean, data science is it's expanding so exponentially quickly that it would be impossible to maintain expertise in all of them anyway. Yeah, so. but you still do want to have that common foundation that makes it possible to like be a team. I yeah, guess. exactly. Be able to talk to anybody else who's an expert in one of those places and generally hang with them as they're explaining things. But yep. yeah. Cool. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time here together. So thank you, Michelangelo, again for coming and talking. Um, once again, we'll have a link to the O'Reilly report on uh, LinearDigressions.com. You can just download all of this. Um, I think when they asked us to write it, they said aim for 20 to 30 pages, and it ended up at 57. So <laughs> I think we nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> um, so thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you again, Michelangelo. Thank you. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.